The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and SART. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Welcome to SART Fertility Experts, a podcast that brings you discussions on important topics for people trying to build a family. Our experts are members of SART, the Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, an organization dedicated to ensuring you receive quality fertility care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the SART Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and it's my pleasure to have as a guest today, Dr. Jennifer Kowas. Uh, Jennifer is the medical director at Emory Reproductive Center. She's associate professor there, Division of Reproductive Endocrinology. She did a residency at Emory, a fellowship, and is uh, at Emory now, and has contributed greatly to our knowledge in, in reproductive medicine. Uh, her interests are tubal factor infertility and vitro fertilization. And today, we're going to talk about egg donation and the difference between fresh and frozen. You know, for years, since the 1980s, when we started egg donation, it was always fresh egg donation. We would stimulate patients and synchronize them with the recipient. But since around 2012, freezing eggs and then using them for egg donation started to gain popularity and has dramatically changed the landscaping of how we do egg donation. So we're going to talk today with Jennifer about this process. So welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's, it's mine as well. So Jennifer, take us back to 2012. That's when the American Society for Reproductive Medicine removed its experimental label on egg freezing and allowed clinics to be able to start offering this as standard of care. And initially, it was used for egg freezing and anticipation for fertility preservation. But tell us why this sort of segued into egg donation. That's a great question, Mark. Um, so, and I think it was about October of 2013, ASRM put out a practice bulletin that suggested that oocyte cryopreservation, which is the freezing of eggs, was no longer considered experimental. Um, and that we had enough data to suggest that outcomes were similar between eggs that had been frozen previously versus eggs that were used fresh. Um, this practice bulletin focused mostly on women that were freezing eggs for fertility preservation, so women undergoing treatment for cancer or some other uh, therapy that might impact their future fertility. But um, as a downstream impact of that publications and sort of the realization that fresh and frozen eggs could be used somewhat interchangeably, the field of um, egg donation and egg freezing for the purpose of donation um, has also sort of changed course and, and transitioned over the last nine, five years. Yeah. So what do you think is the advantage? Uh, for, for, for a while, we thought that fresh eggs were going, was better, and I think it really had showed that. But over the last few years, we're seeing increasing success with frozen eggs, uh, comparable to fresh, essentially. What do you think is the advantage? If a couple comes to you and says, we want to use an egg donor, 
I don't know what to do. Should I use fresh or frozen? How do you tell it? What do you counsel them? Well, I think you have to think about it on a case-to-case basis, as is true with a lot of things in the field of reproductive uh, endocrinology. Um, it depends on the center where you are having treatment and what they uh, offer as services and also um, what your family plans are. Um, some of the advantages of using a fresh donor, for example, is that you might get a larger cohort of eggs um, and might have the opportunity to um, generate more embryos that may be able to uh, allow you to build a larger family if you anticipate wanting more than one or two children. Um, there also, in some situations, may be more diversity in the donor pool if you're selecting from a fresh um, donor. The limitations of using a fresh donor um, are that all donors go through FDA donor eligibility screening and it can take a pretty significant amount of time to find a donor with whom you feel comfortable um, and also for that donor to, to go through all the screening that is required to make them eligible to donate their eggs anonymously. Um, in contrast, when you use frozen eggs, the donor has already gone through all of that screening and the eggs have already been retrieved and are frozen at an egg bank. So the time period um, from your decision to move forward with donor eggs until your ability to have a transfer is often shorter. Um, additionally, you can often buy sort of a cohort of eggs. So eggs are often sold in batches of six, seven, or eight. Um, the limitation of this is that you might end up with one, maybe two embryos from each cohort. We tend to think, whether it's for donor egg or autologous eggs, that from every six to eight eggs, on average, um, you may result with one embryo at the end. Um, so if you buy a cohort of frozen eggs and only end up with one embryo, you may have to start from the beginning in order to generate um, more embryos. I think that's one of the key points is is when a, when a couple asks me or a patient asks me you know which I use fresh versus frozen I often ask them how many children do you mm -hmm. want because if you're using fresh you can end up with a lot of extra embryos Correct. I mean five seven ten frozen probably one to three blasts right mm -hmm. day five embryos and uh, not not always a guarantee to go to blastocysts. so that that's definitely a concern but if they only want to have one child, they may want to lean more towards frozen. That's true. Uh, to not have to be concerned about, now, what do we do with all these extra embryos? We have our family. What do we do? Do we donate them? Uh, you know, d difficult decisions. Another thing, though, is the cost. It's true. Yeah. Fr uh, fresh uh, seems to be, roughly, from, from talking to different programs, you could be talking about $10,000 more than frozen. Is that Th your that's understanding? That's true. And I think... Another differentiating factor is whether the clinic um, at which you're seeking care has an egg bank in-house. There are some clinics that ship eggs from a central egg bank to their clinic and some clinics that have an egg bank within their facility. And some of the flexibility in terms of the number of eggs you can get or the ability to unfreeze additional eggs if the eggs don't thaw well can vary depending on whether the eggs are coming from an external facility that has shipped a, a limited number compared to a clinic um, that has the eggs available and can unfreeze eggs on a uh, as-needed basis. Is there a specific circumstance, Jennifer, that you, that you would recommend fresh versus frozen for a patient? For a directed donor, so if, some, if you have someone who, whom you would specifically like to donate eggs, that's 
probably one of the most common indications. Like sister, cousin, niece. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, wh- what uh, What did you learn from your article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA? You talked about donor egg trends, predictors of good outcomes. What, what did you uh, What did you gain from that, and, and what can you tell our audience? So in 2013, using um, national data that's collected by a CDC surveillance system, we looked at all donor egg uh, recipient cycles that had been performed in the United States over a 10-year period. Um, And we noticed that an increasing number of women are using donor eggs in the United States. Um, But we also learned that the percentage of those pregnancies that end in a term Um, baby of normal birth weight has been increasing over time. And this is largely a reflection of the fact that practices are are trending toward what's called elective single embryo transfer, which is when you put in one embryo at a time, even if you have extra embryos available. Uh, I often see uh, couples, particularly from uh, other countries, talk about doing chromosome testing on these donor eggs uh, that contributed to embryos. I, I think that that's uh, a situation is very individualized, but it's probably not as cost-effective uh, given that these are the best egg qualities that we can have. How do you counsel patients about that when they ask, should I test these embryos? Um, I agree completely. Um, it is a little bit of a controversial topic, potentially uh, worthy of a podcast of its own, um, when to do and when not to do pre-implantation genetic testing. Um, I would say, again, that nothing in REI is black and white, but generally speaking, um, when you're using donor eggs and the oocyte source is someone who's relatively young, the benefit gained from doing genetic testing is probably pretty limited. What we didn't talk about yet is is the process of freezing these eggs. Years ago, when, when they started to try to freeze the eggs, it was a slow freeze method, and for our audience, this was... Uh, risky for the eggs because the the egg has a a high water content and the slow freezing actually caused some crystal formation within the eggs that caused damage. But then vitrification, which is a rapid freeze, came about and really allowed us to be able to do this kind of freezing and enhance the ability to keep the egg quality when it was frozen and then thawed. So do you have an idea of, uh, of, of what uh, percentage of survival of these now vitrified eggs are, and fertilization of these eggs. What, what do you counsel patients about that? If they purchase six to eight eggs, wh- how, much, how many eggs would you say would survive and then fertilize? I think the an- anticipated um, survival is well over 90%, maybe even 95%. A lot of the data, very interestingly, comes out of Italy, um, where freezing embryos was not legal for a long time, and so they gained a lot of experience in freezing eggs. Um, And a lot of what we know now and sort of the turning point in egg freezing going from experimental to um, standard of care uh, stems from many studies that were done in in Italy. Um, In terms of fertilization, um, as far as I know, I actually think the fertilization rates are thought to be comparable probably somewhere around 75%. And the recommendation usually is to do ICSI, or intracytoplasmic sperm injection, um, where a particular sperm is selected and um, injected into the egg. For, for all frozen eggs? 
at the moment. That's yeah. the recommendation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We hope you're finding this episode of SART Fertility Experts helpful. Remember, for more information on this and related topics, visit www.sart.org and click on the tab labeled Patients. And now, back to SART Fertility Experts. So we talked a little bit about the FDA screening of donors, uh, sexually transmitted infections, uh, the donors undergo drug testing, uh, genetic screening, psychological screening. What type of screening for the recipient do you do you do for your patients? For recipients that are planning to use an egg donor, some of the screening is very similar to anyone who would be aiming to get pregnant. So you want to make sure that the female partner is as healthy as possible. So you would do sort of standard prenatal screening. Um, you would screen both uh, partners for um, sexually transmitted infections. And then um, both individuals in the relationship that are using the donor oocytes would um, see a psychologist um, for a psychoeducational appointment. Um, It's an appointment where anyone using donor gametes, whether it's sperm, egg, or embryos, meets with a psychologist who specializes in third-party reproduction um, to sort of learn about... uh, studies that exist to date regarding use of donor gametes and to to think about topics or issues that may come up in the future um, that warrant some forethought. For example, disclosure, you know, when might you tell the child that they are the result of a donor gamete? Are you planning to tell your friends and family? Um, And making sure that everyone sort of feels comfortable and confident moving forward. I found excellent points. I found that the recipients are always worried about their age and how that impacts their fertility. And you try to educate about that to say that, you know, the uterus is not going to age reproductively like the eggs do. Probably only into the late 40s and early 50s do you start seeing a decline. But what age do you recommend not proceeding with egg donation? That's you know, a- there's lots of opportunities. I mean, we're seeing some sensationalized reports of uh, women much, much older in, in, in menopause that are doing this. What, do you have a cutoff uh, uh, about the uh, to recipients? Uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine came out with the guideline of 55 uh, uh, as, as a cutoff, but what are you advising your patients? That's a great question. Um, and and, and not an easy one, yeah. um, but our recommendation is sort of the natural age of menopause, which is um, 52 in the United States. So at our clinic, um, we use 50 as the cutoff for someone who doesn't have any frozen gametes and 52 if they do. Um, This isn't meant to be discriminatory by any means, um, but there are a lot of factors to take into account. Um, The risk of pregnancy itself, the outcome of the pregnancy, and then the well-being of the resultant child. Um, There are lots of um, ethical considerations both for the patient, the couple, um, and the resulting child or children. What we do in our clinic is that we, it's arbitrary of course, but we know that as a woman gets older and she, and she carries a pregnancy, the risks during that pregnancy mm-hmm. are higher, hypertension, diabetes. So we've used 45 as a cutoff to do a complete health screen. And we do an EKG, a treadmill stress test, a glucose tolerance test. Uh, we have them see a high-risk obstetrician uh, because it's, it's something that is, is as much as it, it can be done with ease to do a transfer, uh, the resulting pregnancy, we want to try to ensure that it's as healthy as possible. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So we talked about screening for the recipient, but 
bring us up to date, Jennifer, as to the standard of care right now as to how we screen an egg donor and, and what qualifies them to, to be an egg donor? That's a great question, Mark. Um, so egg donors sort of fall into two groups, either known or anonymous. And among the anonymous donors, the donation can be fresh or frozen. Um, among all egg donors, there is screening that is mandated by the FDA. This screening focuses mostly on risk of infectious disease um, and transmission of any type of infection from one individual to another. So the same rules that apply to any kind of organ transplant apply to an egg donor. Um, and this screening is termed donor eligibility testing. It involves a physical exam, an extended questionnaire that includes risk factors such as areas of travel that might incur risk, um, and a physical exam as well as um, a, a long panel of infectious disease um, blood tests. To be an anonymous donor, all of that screening has to be deemed eligible or, or, or found to be negative. Um, in the setting of a directed donation, that screening is still required. However, um, if someone is found um, to have a, a risk factor that the recipient is willing to consider or incur, the donation is allowed to proceed. In addition to the FDA screening, donors are um, highly recommended and essentially required to go through additional screening that is um, guided by ASRM. This screening um, includes um, a meeting with a psychologist and a uh, psychological evaluation, a meeting with a geneticist, um, and again is, is focused primarily on looking at um, family history risk factors um, as well as making sure that the donor herself is comfortable with moving forward with the donation and appreciates and understands um, what she is doing by donating her gametes. And there's also uh, recommendations to not exceed, I think, five or six uh, Correct. numbers of cycles for an egg donor to avoid the p theoretical risk of, of consanguinity, which is, which is uh, uh, the potential for the, um, the donor's eggs to uh, be inseminated with some potential uh, similar genetics from a relation. Uh, then so that's something that is... Now that the world is a, is a smaller place, it's hard to really put a number on to how many times somebody can cycle it's true. to go through that. We talked a lot about the different uh, ways to screen, but what we didn't touch upon is when would a patient choose uh, to pursue egg donation? Uh, the biologic desire is to always have that connection uh, to the baby, right? Eggs mm -hmm. and sperm. But there reaches a point where the prognosis is so poor, and I'm not talking, you know, obviously ovarian failure, menopause, I mean, those are, those are obvious situations. But when do you think a patient should really start considering egg donation, even though she's having cycles uh, and hasn't reached the point of uh, menopause? Uh, so how would you counsel a patient to that? Well, I'd say that the indications for egg donation are more varied than one might think. Um, the classic indication, as, as you suggested, is someone who has um, significantly advanced maternal age, um, which 
somewhat remarkably can be in the early to mid 40s um, from a reproductive perspective. Um, Additionally, someone who has significant diminished ovarian reserve or premature ovarian insufficiency even at a young age is likely to be a candidate for donor oocytes. Um, Same-sex male couples um, who desire to conceive using fertility services often use donor oocytes. And often even um, women with certain genetic diseases might opt to use um, donor eggs rather than their own. If it's a heterosexual couple, uh, I have found that there's, there's a challenge initially by at least one of them to pursue egg donation. And sometimes it's the man and sometimes it's the woman. What do you see as, as the stumbling block uh, to pursue egg donation? What, what are the challenges psychologically for the intended parents? Um, I agree completely in, in that it's often a very difficult decision to make. Um, and that it's something that evolves. So I'd say it's very rare that someone walks into my office and says, hi, I'm here to do egg donation. Um, But over time, um, and with some sort of time to think through their options and and think through what what their goal in terms of parenthood is, um, the realization that building a family is not always the way that we've initially envisioned it, it can be, um, involving donor gametes, it can be adoption. There, there's so many ways to build a family and to, and to be a parent. Um, and that I think over time, sometimes a couple's attitudes or priorities may shift. Um, and there are many women for whom donor egg is, is the right choice, and there's some women for whom it doesn't feel right. And I, I would argue that if it doesn't feel right, it's probably not a good idea. I, I'll never forget a patient... We had just done a transfer. It was a Saturday morning, and uh, wishing her well and ready to leave. And she goes, um, "Can you make sure that my OB/GYN doesn't know this was egg donation?" And uh, I says, "Well, it's certainly going to be your prerogative, but given your age, uh, he or she is going to think uh, that you're going to be at risk of a, of a baby with chromosomal issues like Down syndrome, and he's going to want to do that kind of testing." I says, "Can I just ask why you would want me to withhold that?" And she says, "Well, I don't want." my OBGYN to know the baby isn't mine. And that was a paralyzing sentence to me. I, I, I remember it vividly. So I, I literally had to sit down with her in the transfer room. And I said, can we talk a little bit? Uh, and I think when, when someone chooses this route, the baby that comes from that is only going to know the mother, and the, or if it's a heterosexual couple, the mother and the father, as their parents. And I think when you choose this option, it, it needs to be choose, chosen proactively, mm-hmm. where they are embracing that child as theirs. As, same as adoption. I adopted five children. And uh, you, you, it's not in any way uh, second best. Uh, it, it's a way that you have decided now to choose your family. And I think it has to be looked upon in that type of encouraging way um, and it's a much more healthy way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when we started to, to look into uh, adoption and we adopted our first child, I, I shared with my wife, I did not want to have any more attempts at biologic children because I didn't want our children to ever think they were temporary or a, a, um, uh, just a, a second best, as I said. So uh, it's, a, 
It's a very our field is full of psychological challenges, <laughs> and, uh, it but it's uh, it's very rewarding nonetheless. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for your insights, um, your years of valuable contributions to the literature. I learned a lot from you, and I know our audience did as well. So, uh, until next time, this is Dr. Mark Charles, and we thank Dr. Jennifer Kowas uh, during this Sartin podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to SART Fertility Experts, your resource for information on IVF. If you found this podcast useful, please like us on your favorite social media platform and tell your friends about us. For more family building resources, visit www.sart.org slash patient information or www.reproductivefacts.org.